today is without a doubt the single most sobering passage in all the Word of God because it describes a terrible inevitability. And when it happens, it will be with an awful finality. I'm referring to the event that is found in verses 11 to 15. I want to begin by reading those verses together. John relates, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away. There was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one, according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Most of us in this room today have undoubtedly read this passage and heard it preached or taught uh, at some point. And I think that most of the time we think of its significance in relation to us as individuals. Uh, that's important, and of course, we should certainly do that today. However, before you do, I want to call your attention to its significance in two other ways. The first is the chronological significance of this event. Notice the next verse that opens chapter 21, which we did not read. But after this event, John sees a new heaven and a new earth. There will be an entirely new heaven and a completely new earth. So evidently, the event we just read about will close out the old heaven and the old earth. In other words, this is the climax of all human history that began with the creation of the first man and his wife, regardless of how long the present heavens and earth will continue to exist, and we really don't know, they will be closed forever by this event. Secondly, I want to point out the significance of this event Christologically. And uh, I think the slide is not advancing. Can we advance the slide? Thank you. We're down to the third point. Thank you. What is its significance for Jesus Christ? In 1 Corinthians 15, where the Apostle Paul reveals the nature of a bodily resurrection, he speaks about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and he says that after his resurrection, Jesus was elevated to a position where he now reigns over all things. Then it says that he must reign until he has put all of his enemies under his feet. And when he has done that, as described in the book of Revelation, and he reigns over all, then he will deliver up the kingdom to God the Father so that God may be all in all. Now at that time, 1 Corinthians 15 says, the last enemy that shall be, that shall be destroyed is the enemy that is found in verse 14 of this passage. Look at it. What is that enemy? The last en enemy that is destroyed is death. You can see in verse 14 that death itself will be thrown into the lake of fire. And this means that when human history is brought to its conclusion, it will be the culmination of the reign of Jesus Christ and his conquest over everything that has ever exalted itself above him including death as the penalty for sin. In other words, this event will be the final event in his reign in human history. And then the entire kingdom will be delivered up to the Father so that God may be all in all. 
Now, what we have revealed in this passage about this event is really fourfold. We are told something about the judge in that hour. We have a revelation of those who will be judged. Then we are told of the judging that will take place. And finally, we are told of the judgment itself. So I want to speak to you this morning on the great white throne. It's judge, the judged, the judging, and the judgment. Easy to remember. First of all, in verse 11, we are told something about him who will judge. We are told about his seat. Now, in a court of law, a judge is typically seated on an elevated platform uh, with a bench in front of him. Now, this judge, however, will be seated on a throne. This is a throne that is referred to over 40 times in the book of Revelation. We're told in chapter 4 that this throne is surrounded by a rainbow that is emerald-like in its appearance. We read about that this morning. Chapter 4 also tells us that out of this throne comes thunder and lightning. It says before this throne there are seven lamps of burning fire. There is a vast crystal pavement before it. And in Daniel 7, where you have a, a similar scene, this throne is all aflame, and there is a river of fire flowing from underneath it. Around this throne are thousands and thousands of attendants. In fact, the passage says there are myriads standing before him. So it is mentioned many times in Scripture, and yet verse 11 is the only actual description of the throne itself in the book of Revelation. And we are told two things about the seat on which this judge will carry out his work in that day. One of them, one of the things we are told is its size. Look at verse 11. Then I saw a great, that is a mega throne. Now, we have many things in our contemporary culture that we describe with that Greek word mega translated as great here. We talk about megaphones and megabytes and megastores and megalomaniacs and megamind. Children got that one. Uh, in fact, we overuse... Uh, this prefix so much, it actually loses its sense of meganess or greatness. Well, this throne is immense. It is mega, like the great mountain burning with fire that will be cast uh, into the sea in the coming tribulation, chapter 8, verse 8. It's mega, like the great river Euphrates, chapter 9, verse 14, or the great city Babylon that reigns over the whole earth. Chapter 17 and 18, it is, it, is, it is great, like God himself is great. Uh, chapter 19, verse 17, the, the immensity of this throne is awesome. Back in chapter 20, verse 4, we were shown thrones that are meant for those who will reign with the Lord during the coming millennial period. But this throne dwarfs them all. Secondly, we are told of its color. It is white. Most of you would be familiar with the United Nations, and you may have seen uh, pictures of their headquarters in New York City. Out front, you have all of these uh, many flags uh, from every nation that is represented in the United Nations, and those flags are brilliant and multicolored and varied. But evidently, the color of heaven is white. White is heaven's color. Jesus Christ himself is white hair, chapter 1, verse 4. He will return on a white horse, chapter 19, verse 11. The elders around the throne are dressed in white, chapter 4, verse 4. The martyred saints wear white, chapter 6, verse 11. Jesus, you may recall, gives to overcomers a white stone, chapter 2, verse 17. They will walk with him in white, chapter 3, verse 4, and we who are in the armies of heaven that return at Armageddon will be riding on white horses, chapter 19, verse 14. Now, evidently, the significance of that color 
is its purity. And I'm saying that because at our Lord's transfiguration, you remember that his deity shone on the inside out uh, right through his clothing. Mark 9.3 says that his garments became radiant, exceedingly white, like no launderer on earth can whiten them. Launderers clean garments, but launderers could not make those garments as white as his deity. It is brilliant even when shining through his robe. So clearly it does stand for the purity of heaven, and the throne will be like that, spotless. Let even the smallest speck to stain the brilliant whiteness of that throne. It is obviously befitting the character of the one who is himself light, and in whom the Bible says is no darkness at all. And then it also, I think, portrays the spotless, righteous verdicts that will come from the judge seated on that throne. Secondly, we are told something about the judge's presence. Look at it in verse 11. He sits on that throne and it says, from whose face, meaning from his presence, the earth and the heaven flee away at the end of human history. And there was found no place for them. Now we do need to understand that this language isn't describing heaven and earth being banished to some remote corner of the universe where they continue to exist. No, this is referring to the complete disillusion of the present heavens and the present earth. They will simply be unmade. They will exist no more. Isaiah 51.6 describes it in this way, for the heavens will vanish away like smoke. You've all seen that, right? A, a little wisp of smoke uh, that twirls upward from a match that is just being put out, it's, and then it's gone. Lasts for barely a second. Well, the sky will vanish like that. And the earth will grow old like a garment. Jesus put it this way, that heaven and earth will pass away. But perhaps the most graphic description of this is given by Peter in his second letter, chapter 3, verse 10, when he writes, the heavens will pass away with a great noise. And that refers to a sound that is a rushing, whizzing sound. Now, you've all heard firecrackers ignite like that. Well, the heavens will pass away with a great noise like that, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. The word elements here uh, is the Greek word stoikeia, which refers to the building blocks of all material things. In other words, the very building blocks of matter, uh, the, the atoms, the very atoms themselves will be destroyed with intense heat. It will be the end of the law of thermodynamics. It'll be gone. Uh, but it says both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. That includes this building we're sitting in today. Praise God for that. Our property that we store away so carefully in storage facilities. Our homes. Our cars. Everything I've ever made with my hands. It will all be unmade in a moment. In an explosion of fire, it is gone. It is unmade by the words of God, just like it was made by the words of God. Only the throne and the awesome figure upon it will remain. Think about that. There's no place on earth where these people can stand or return to. In fact, there's no earth. Not even the heavens are there as a backdrop. Sky and all the galaxies in our universe. It's just the awfulness of being suspended in empty space before this throne. In other words, there's nothing familiar for these people to glance back and see and reminisce about. Nothing that they've ever looked at or owned in their lifetime exists anymore. Everything that they've ever accomplished, that was applauded or remembered or imitated. It's all gone. And in that moment, the people must prepare to meet their God. 
So what is the identity then of this judge on the throne? Well, the scripture is very clear that this is God the Father's throne. That's been made clear several times in the book already in chapters 4 and 5 that we read. You may recall that the heavenly inhabitants sing to the one who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. In other words, they distinguish between the two. The one who sits on the throne and the Lamb of God, who is Jesus Christ. The tribulation martyrs also sing in this way. Chapter 7, verses 9 and 10. They sing salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Again, making that distinction. And yet the Lord Jesus told us in chapter 3 that after he ascended to heaven, he sat down with his Father on his throne. And that's why in chapter 22, verse 1, for example, when John sees the river of the water of life, it actually proceeds from the throne of God and of the Lamb. It is the throne of God and of the Lamb. Why the Lamb? Well, after he finished our redemption on the cross, remember he was raised from the dead, and then he ascended to God's right hand, where he sat down with the Father on the Father's throne. It is a shared throne. Now, which of those two on the throne will be men's judge? Well, during our Lord's earthly ministry, he absolutely denied that God the Father would ever judge any person. He denied it in John 5.22 when he said, For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son. Why to the Son? Well, he explains that in the next verse, that all should honor the Son as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Did you know that if we do not honor the Son of God, we do not honor the Father? Well, all judgment is committed to the Son in order that all may honor the Son even as they honor the Father. When the Apostle Paul made his way to that pagan Greek city of Athens and preached his famous sermon on Mars Hill before those philosophical people who'd never been presented with the gospel before, when he came to the end of that message, he said this, that God has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. What man? Well, he has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. And the man he raised from the dead was Jesus of Nazareth, his own son in human flesh. And in 2 Timothy 4.1, Paul wrote to preachers and he said, I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. On that day of the great white throne, it will be apparent to all people that the one to whom they will answer is the one who came to earth in flesh and who bore the sins of the world and accepted all of their punishment that was due and who gave his life in a bloody, violent death in order to cancel out all of the debt that was piled up against them in their sins. And in that moment, they will stand before him, this awesome figure on this brilliant white throne, and they will answer for their unbelief in who he is and what he did for them. Now that brings me to this secondly, the judged. Verses 12 and 13. Who will stand there before the Son of God? Well, they are simply described in verse 12 as the dead. A very sobering description. But who are these dead? Well, we need to glance back at verses 4 and 5 for a moment because we want to be very careful about our interpretation on this point. You remember that after the second coming of Jesus Christ to earth, John relates the setting up of thrones in verse 4. And he says, Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image and so on. In other words, he sees the martyrs for Christ during the tribulation. Now look at the end of verse 4. And they lived 
and reigned with Christ. But in verse 5 it says, But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection, the resurrection of those tribulation saints. It's the first of two resurrections in this passage. In other words, what you have here is the fact that when the Lord returns for the second time to earth, it's going to be the resurrection of dead tribulation martyrs who will go on to reign with him for 10 centuries on the earth. He's going to reign, and those are his people. And even before the second coming, we know from 1 Thessalonians 4 and other passages that there's going to be this wonderful event that we are waiting for, which may come in our lifetimes when the Lord is going to descend from heaven with a shout, and the dead in Christ will rise and we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in, in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. In other words, uh, the Lord is coming to call his bride to himself, the church. And those who died in Christ before that time, and all the centuries before that, will be raised in that moment. And then the terrible events of the tribulation take place, and then it's the second coming of Jesus Christ, to earth, when those who believed in Jesus after the rapture, but before the second coming, the dead tribulation saints, they are raised at this first of two resurrections in the passage. But over a thousand years later, after those people have reigned with Christ during the millennium, there's another resurrection, the second resurrection. So who are those dead people? Well, the first resurrection was all those who died in Christ. The second resurrection are all those who did not die in the Lord. It's the dead from all the ages, including the millennial age, who died unredeemed outside of Christ. They will be there, verse 12, regardless of their station in life whether they were great in men's eyes or whether they were small and insignificant, it says. Do you realize that at that judgment there will be world-class athletes? There will be Nobel Prize winners. There will be politicians who were so worshipped by the media within their lifetimes they were voted in again and again to office. Either they were really good or they were really powerful, one or the other. There'll be actors and film writers who won Oscars and Emmys. There will be nobles who are born into old money and position in life. There'll be farmers and military personnel. Some of them undoubtedly won the Victoria Cross. There'll be factory workers and real estate agents and IT technicians and insurance brokers and tinkers and watchmakers and nuclear physicists and kings and queens and emperors and religious leaders who had millions of followers and teachers and musicians and artists and ballerinas and car salesmen and students and admin assistants and solicitors and physicians and dental hygienists and radiologists and pharmacists. There'll be mothers and fathers. There'll be grandparents and aunts and uncles and sons and daughters. Whole families will be there together for multiple generations. And not one of them will have any of their earthly possessions. They will not wear any of their insignias or medals or uniforms or military stripes or have an entourage of followers or, or staff personnel to wait on their needs. They will simply be naked people standing vulnerable and helpless before that immense pristine throne. They will be there regardless of their location after death. That's the significance of verse 13. Notice that it says the sea gave up the dead who were in it. What's the point of telling us that except to assure us that there's no kind of death or loss of the material body that can save it from being resurrected by its maker to stand reunited with its spirit before the throne. That includes bodies that have been disintegrated and 
scattered over a wide area to the winds. People who were drowned or blown up or eaten by wild animals or people whose ashes were scattered into the oceans long millennia ago. Look at the thousands who were turned to ash in the atomic bombs of World War II. Think of all the ships in history that have sunk with the loss of all hands on board. Think of the smoke rising from death camps where millions were murdered to feed the human ovens in war and genocide and worked to death in slave labor camps. People turned to dust will be remade. You doubt that? Well, I want to remind you that when human history began, it began with the Lord God omnipotent stooping and making a material human body out of dirt. So the same God who began human history by making a body out of dust and a woman's body out of the rib of her husband is the same God who can put all of those molecules back together so that those people stand at the judgment in the end. Cain will be there. Part of his wife will be there. The Pharaoh who demanded that all the Israelite male infants will be slaughtered will be there. Pharaoh of the Exodus will be there. All those kings in the Old Testament who have the record of walking in the sins of their fathers will be there. They will stand there in the feet with which they walked in the sins of their fathers. Herod the Great, who attempted to murder Jesus, will be there. Genghis Khan will be there. Henry VIII, Bloody Mary, the popes who misled people for all of those centuries. Hitler will be there. Stalin will be there. Mao Zedong will be there. Pol Pot will be there. Every person outside of Christ will be there. If you look at verse 13 again, the spirits will be reunited with their bodies for this occasion. It says, death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. Hades is the scriptural term for the intermediate destination of the human spirit between physical death and this event. When a Christian dies, the Bible says that they are absent from the body and they are present with the Lord. Our bodies are then buried by our loved ones to await resurrection, but our spirits go to be with the Lord. But when a man or woman dies outside of Christ, his body is buried to also wait for a resurrection, but his spirit goes to Hades. And the most complete description that we have of this place comes from the Lord Jesus himself when he said that it is a place of torment in flame. This is where the spirit is confined for all of the long years between their physical death and this event. Once heard a convict testimony about what he regarded to be the worst part of his incarceration, and this is what he said. I can't go outside when I want to. I can't run down the street to get a hamburger or a donut. I can't call my mom. I won't ever again wade in a stream or climb a tree or drive a car or attend a football game. I'm confined. Well, there is a confinement that is immeasurably worse. And that is a confinement of the spirit in a place of torment called Hades. From there, they only receive a brief reprieve before that spirit is united with its resurrected body to stand before this throne. Now, what will happen there? Verses 12, 13, and 15 tell of the judging that will take place there. Verse 12, we are told that in heaven there are books. Those books are evidently the record of men and women's deeds. There is a single book in a different category, and it's referred to here and in verse 15 as the book of life. Elsewhere, it's known as the Lamb's book of life. So those books are open, and at the end of verse 12, and repeated in verse 15, is the statement that all of those people who died outside of Christ will be judged according 
to their works. And we need to be clear about this in light of what Scripture says as a whole. I mean, we are emphatically told that no one will ever be declared righteous in God's sight because of his works. Nobody. So not a single person will stand at that judgment and be exonerated when the books of his works are open. Not one. There is none righteous. No, not one in the sight of God. Revelation 3.20 says, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified or declared righteous in his sight. No flesh. All of these people stand there in their flesh. And the Bible says no flesh will be declared righteous in God's sight by the deeds of the law. Why not? It says, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. It was never God's plan for people to attain righteousness by keeping the law, because by the law is only the knowledge of their sin. So God gives us the law, and we look at it, and we realize that we're not keeping it, In fact, we can't keep it. We are sinners. That's the whole purpose of the law. To make us realize we are failing to meet the standard, that that we are sinners in God's sight. Now, there will undoubtedly be hundreds of millions of people who will stand before the throne in that day, and if their experience in Hades has not brought them to an understanding of this, then they will be enlightened when the books are opened because it will become obvious to them in that moment that no flesh will be declared righteous by the deeds of the law. I mean, they'll be examined in light of the law of God and they will discover, if they have never acknowledged it before, that they really are sinners in the sight of God. In other words, the point of judging these people by their works is not the remote possibility that some of them will be found righteous enough to be accepted in a heaven. This is not a time to measure the good against the bad and figure out who scrapes in a heaven. No. The point will be to display to them indisputably that they are exactly what the Word of God Describe them to be for all of their earthly lives, not righteous, not good, not deserving of anything but damnation. And so wretched in God's sight that the only way to save them was for God to send His own Son to take the penalty on the cross. Now, I also have no doubt that in that moment, There'll be many of those people who would begin to protest their righteousness. But God will reveal the truth of their heart and the truth of their words and their real motivations found in their long life refusal to come to terms with Christ and his salvation. In that moment, as Romans says, every mouth will be stopped. It says that God reveals their sinfulness by the law in order that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. My choice and your choice in this life is simply this. I will either acknowledge that I stand guilty and condemned before God in this life, or I will stand at that throne and find out I am guilty and condemned before God. The fact about my guilt remains the same, but the location where it finally sinks in may be different. Regardless of that, my deeds and your deeds will not carry any weight towards our salvation in the scales of heaven in that moment any more than they carry weight when you are on this earth. People will be judged according to their works and they will be judged, verse 15, according to this book of life. Let me ask you something. Is your name written in the Lamb's book of life? I'm going to ask you that today. Is your name written in God's book of life? You say, well, how can I be sure that it is? Here's what the Bible says. The Bible tells us that when Jesus came to earth, his own did not receive him. John 1.11. 
In other words, his own people, his own institutions, his own things that were designed to foreshadow him. He came to his own. His own received him not. He was not welcomed by his own. Verse 12, but as many as received him, and there were some. There are some today. Well, to them, he gave the authority to be called the children of God. In other words, God is offering us eternal life. In John 3, 36, he who believes in the Son has eternal life. But on the other hand, he who does not believe in the world is filled with millions of them. And even Protestant church-going people who attend worship services like this for week after week may tip their hat to God, but they do not really believe in the testimony that the Word of God gives to Jesus Christ. And those who do not believe, regardless of their good works, regardless of their religious attitude, he does not have life, but the wrath of God already abides on him. So how can you have eternal life? Well, 1 John 5, and this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life. And there's only one place in all the universe where that life is to be found. This life is in his Son. So, he says, he who has the Son has life. Do you have the Son of God? Is he your personal Savior? Well, he who has the Son has what's in the Son, which is life. That only makes sense. So, he who has the Son has life, but he who does not have the Son of God does not have life. These things, John says, I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. My friend, it's all about having a right relationship to Jesus Christ. Now, the really tragic thing is that in that hour, there really are going to be people who will plead on the basis of something else. And we know that because in the Bible itself, you can see it happening. Let's talk about that for a moment, because you may be in the category of those who would plead something other than the Son of God and what he did on the cross. For example, Jesus was plagued by the claims of his own chosen people throughout his earthly ministry. Uh, he came to the nation of Israel, and they kept protesting to him that their eternal destiny was assured because, hey, we are the descendants of Abraham. Now, John the Baptist dealt with that when he basically said to them, hey, don't think to yourselves that we have Abraham as our father because, listen to this, God can raise up children of Abraham from the rocks if he wants to. So you ain't nothing special. In other words, your connection as a Jew does not give you an automatic ticket in heaven. Another time the people said to Jesus, well, Abraham's our father, as if that, you know, settled the whole question of their eternal security. And the Lord's response was, well, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. When he saw it, he was glad. What did he mean by that? Well, uh, he was referring back to Genesis 18 when Abraham was approached by three men and one of them said to him, you know, about this time next year, I'm going to return to you and your 90-year-old barren wife is going to have a child. And if you read the passage carefully, it says that Abraham was actually speaking with the Lord, the second person of the Godhead in his pre-incarnate form. And the Lord revealed to Abraham what his plans were for the future. So yes, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it, and he was glad. And the people said, hang on a sec, you're not even 50. How could you have seen Abraham? And Jesus said, oh, you don't understand. Before Abraham came into being, I am. And he used the sacred name of God, Yahweh. And believe me, those people knew exactly what he was claiming because they picked up stones to murder him for his blasphemy. But Jesus had said to them, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. See, these people were looking for their Messiah, but they were looking for one that fit their mold. 
And they didn't want Jesus as their Messiah. And they thought that because they were born into the race of God's chosen people, they were already guaranteed an eternity in heaven. But a physical descent from any individual, including Abraham himself, is a vain hope. It's just as vain as claiming salvation because you grew up in a Christian family. Or you went to a Christian school. Or you attend a Christian church. Or your nation has a Christian heritage. Your Christian background will not save you, my friend. There will also be people who will stand there and plead their works. And we know that because our Lord talked about it at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. He looked ahead and he said, you know what, this is what's going to happen. Many people will say to me, I mean, this is not just going to be an occasional exception. Many will say to me, their judge, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? Cast out demons in your name and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them these chilling words, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. What a heart-stopping moment for those people. Now, please understand that there's only one reason why Jesus wouldn't know you, and that is if you refuse to know him in the way that he is. you, You can't know Jesus in your own imagination. And there are lots of people making up their own Jesus. You know, I believe in Jesus, but they don't like a Jesus who was virgin born. They don't like a Jesus who did miracles. They don't like a Jesus who rose bodily from the dead or a Jesus who had to shed his blood for their sins. They don't like a Jesus who makes any demands upon their life as their Lord and Master. They just kind of make up their own kind of Jesus. But someday they will find out that they did not know the Lord and that he did not know them. And that brings us lastly to the judgment in verse 15. What awful words these are. And anyone not found written in the book of life, because they would not believe what the Bible says about the Son of God and what he did. If there's anyone like that, he was cast into the lake of fire. Now this is Gehenna. Uh, Our Lord preached about this, and it's interesting that you have more teaching about fire and eternal damnation and Gehenna and Hades in the Gospels from the mouth of our Lord than you have from the mouth of any other writer of Scripture. It's appropriate, I think, right? because Jesus is the judge. In the book of Revelation, this lake is mentioned four times as being a place of fire and brimstone. You find it in chapter 14, verse 10. Uh, 19 verse 20, 20 verse 10, and 21 verse 8. If you turn back to chapter 19 for a moment, if you look at verse 20, at the end of the verse you can see it actually describes the relationship between the fire and the brimstone because it says that this is a lake of fire which burns with brimstone. I think I've mentioned this before, but brimstone is sulfur. It is a yellowish, non-metallic substance. That's the major component of gunpowder. About half of all gunpowder produced today is extracted from oil or natural gas. Sulfur melts at 120 degrees Celsius. At 250 degrees, it turns a fierce red. At 450 degrees, it boils and turns a, a pitchy, dark brown. And no one here should deny the literalness of that sulfur with which the lake of fire is fueled because our Lord himself in Luke 17, 29 said that this is what he used to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. He opened the skies and rained fire and sulfur upon those wicked people. And that was literal. That burning was real. Those cities were consumed, and in the book of Jude, verse 7, God tells us that what he used to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah was done as a sign to all humanity of what it will look like to suffer the vengeance of eternal fire. 
Now, those of us who know the truth have a responsibility to take it to the nations of the world and let people know that God is compassionate. And He loves them with an everlasting love, so much so that He gave His only Son in order to keep people from entering Gehenna. We are compelled by a love for God to go and tell people this news. The Bible says we ought to preach it to every creature. Tell them that their response to God's gospel will determine their eternal destiny. Mark 16, 15 says that whoever believes and is baptized shall be saved, but whoever does not believe will be damned. That's why we ordain missionaries and preachers to uh, give their lives to get this message to people in spite of how their faces look when you tell them that news. In spite of the uh, antagonism and the hatred they feel when someone comes and warns them of the judgment to come. This is the task of the preacher and the evangelist. The responsibility of every believer here this morning. We must tell all people of the saving work of Jesus Christ because the Lord Jesus longs to deliver them from their sin and judgment. Jesus said in Mark 9 that when people go into Gehenna, they go in with their two hands, their two feet, and their two eyes, and they go in weeping and grinding their teeth. That will be the sober reality for billions of people on that day when they stand before the great white throne and face eternity in the lake of fire. Every individual here needs to realize that we are on a globe that is hanging out there in black space and this whole thing is going somewhere like a freight train. The final station is the great white throne judgment, where it all comes to a screeching final stop. And if someone says to himself, well, you know, that's in the far distant future. I got time. Just remember that this train is filled with dead people. In other words, it's not just you standing in jeopardy if you happen to be one of those who is alive when the great white throne rolls around. No, your fate is sealed the instant you die without Christ. So you will be buried on the train and it's over for you on earth. But the final stop is yet to come. So it is immensely important that you really come to grips with the fact that God is being merciful to you today by letting you hear these things from His Word. He does not want you to perish. He does not want you to die in that second death and be hurled into the lake of fire. But if you persist for any reason in rejecting His salvation in His Son, then there will come the day when you've crossed the line. And as someone has said, you will hear God's final call. His final call of grace. The last stanza of that hymn by John Peterson goes like this. If you reject God's final call of grace, you'll have no chance your footsteps to retrace. All hope will then be gone and doom your face. Oh, hear his call, God's final call. Let's bow for prayer. With every head bowed this morning, every person in this room today needs to call on the Lord right now. No exceptions, please. All of us. We need to call on the Lord right now and tell him that you believe the testimony that he's given about his son in the Bible. Now, you may have done this a hundred times. Do it again right now. Tell the Lord you believe that Jesus Christ is eternal God who came in flesh 
that he bore your sins and paid all of your penalty and rose again from the dead and ascended to God's right hand and he's coming again. Just confess right now in your prayer that you believe these things with all of your heart. And if anyone's here and it makes you uncomfortable because you don't know how to respond to these things, you don't understand them. As our service ends, I want to encourage you to let someone take a Bible, take you to a room and pray with you and help you. You never want to assume that everybody here on a Sunday morning is a Christian. But for every believer here, just tell the Lord right now that you believe. Thank him for saving your soul. Our Father, we are immeasurably grateful for what you have done through the Lord Jesus Christ. Without him, we would be headed for that great white throne. And the judgment that awaits those who do not believe. Father, this is a reality that is coming. Thank you for telling us. Thank you for giving us motivation. Go and warn the world of what's ahead. Father, bless us, those of us who know you. Strengthen our faith that we might fulfill that great commission that you've given us get the gospel to all the world and help us to start with those around us. Father, we believe these things and we love you because you've thrown us a lifeline in the person of your son. And we believe in him and only him to save us from that wrath that is coming. Bless us, Father, and bless our church. May we see the salvation of souls this week in Jesus' name, amen. We're going to sing another one of the great old gospel hymns um, that is about heaven. And I just want to reiterate what Pastor Mike has said. I mean, well, this is a song of celebration for all of us who know Christ, who have really put all of the weight of our faith in his identity and his work, his ministry, through sacrifice and resurrection. Those who are in him, we can sing this with so much confidence and, and, and thanks and anticipation because of our position when we sing, when we all get to heaven. But if you have not made that decision, if you have not made it personal, this is an empty, meaningless song for you. And you really need to talk to us today or contact us this week. The sooner the better. So I want you to consider that. But for those who know Christ, Let's stand, let's sing, let's rejoice as we anticipate that time when we all get to heaven. Sing the wondrous song of Jesus.